Hello and welcome to episode 29 of Radicals in Conversation, a monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. On the 20th of March, we'll be publishing two new books in the series Outspoken by Pluto. One of these books is Feminism Interrupted by Lola Olafemi. Last week, we were very lucky to have Lola join us in the studio, hosting a discussion around the themes in the book. She's joined in conversation by Jade Bentel and Gail Lewis. That's coming up in just a moment, but first, a couple of quick announcements. Firstly, as ever, you can go to plutobooks.com forward slash podcast reading to discover books related to this episode, including, of course, Feminism Interrupted, and for a discount exclusive to our listeners. So do have a browse after you finish listening today. And secondly, this is something we're very excited about. I'm really pleased to announce a new partnership in 2020 between Pluto Press and the People's Forum. Through the wonderful medium of the podcast, we'll be collaborating to bring you the most insightful conversations taking place on the left today. So from this month on, we'll be bringing you two episodes a month instead of one, alternating between Radicals in Conversation and The New Intellectuals. The New Intellectuals is a monthly interview show produced for the People's Forum and hosted by author, educator and TPF director of research, Jordan T. Camp. It features interviews with intellectuals invested in the struggles of the poor, working class and the dispossessed in North America and across the world. You can subscribe to that podcast today via Radicals and Conversation. So if you're already a subscriber, then you don't need to do anything other than sit back and let the RSS feed do its thing. But for now, it's a real privilege to bring you Lola Olafemi, Jade Bentel and Gail Lewis in conversation. Hi, everyone. I'm Lola. I'm a black feminist writer um, and organiser and researcher from London. And today I'm joined with Gail Lewis, who was until recently a reader in psychosocial studies in the Department of Psychosocial Studies at Birkbeck College and is a psychotherapist having trained at Tavistock Clinic. Um, She's worked at the Open University and Lancaster University and her political subjectivity was formed in the intensities of black feminist and anti-racist struggle and through a socialist anti-imperialist lens. And I'm also joined by Jade Bentel, who's a black feminist historian and PhD researcher at the University of Oxford. Her debut book, Rebel Citizen, explores the lived experiences of black women who migrated to Britain following the Second World War and will be published by Penguin Press in 2020. And today we're going to talk about some of the themes that are in my new book called Feminism Interrupted, which comes out on uh, March 20th. And I guess I wanted to start by um, thinking about how I kind of open the book and the way that I open the book is talking about my journey to feminism, coming to feminism as a political methodology, as a political idea. Um, And for me, it's always been a very generative frame that allowed me personal freedom that I then learned that I had to extend to other people. So that I came to this understanding of feminism as this political methodology that we can use um, to make demands for our freedom and the freedom of other people and womanhood as this strategic kind of coalition or umbrella um, under which we gather to make those demands and the first question that I want to ask to you both is how you came to feminism what your journey was and how you think that journey shaped the kind of radical thinking and organizing um, that you're both involved in I feel like you should go <laughs> first go on, we go, we go. this is chronology Although hopefully we'll talk about chronology and the complexities of that um, so really I came to feminism through being in Sri Lanka. 
So my first kind of political education, my political activism was all located in anti-racism and anti-imperialism, inflected through a class analysis, absolutely. And in my youth, those early parts, I was dismissive of feminism, really thinking it was a white kind of middle class agenda that had nothing much to say to any working class women, but also especially black women of any class. Mm. Um, and it was, I then lived in Sri Lanka for a year. So this is like 1974 for a year. And I met women there who were feminists and who kind of caught me up short and said, what kind of nonsense is this? You're really buying into the idea that only white women can own something called feminism. Mm. This is, you know, this isn't, where's your anti-imperialism here? Where's your struggle to, not just to expand the category, but to reform it? When you go home, you should get yourself involved in that kind of stuff. And the thing is, is that corresponded with a kind of understanding, an everyday understanding of domestic life, where feminism made sense in that arena, you know, the ways in which there was a kind of gendered economy in the household. And yet I didn't really have a language to speak that. And feminism did begin to do that for me. But I have to say that really, although I was around, very much around forms of feminist activism and organisations like Lesbian Left in the late 1970s, it's black feminism that is my mantle Mm. and is the thing that kind of formed me as a feminist and the location in which I still situate myself and I think there is something specific about black feminism. For me in terms of coming to feminism I was definitely kind of part of I guess what people are framing as fourth wave but you know we can talk about the dangers of that sort of periodization definitely at some point but um, you know it was kind of in around 2013 I was 20 I was like obsessed with tumblr at the time (laughs) and you know i just i'd obviously at school kind of heard about this thing called feminism and it was very much shaped around you know the kind of histories and legacies and genealogies of like white middle class women's organizing so you know i came across this kind of post on tumblr that kind of spoke about feminism from the positionality of black womanhood And my mind was just completely blown. I spent the entire summer just kind of like reading up on any and every kind of black feminist text I could find. So that was from like Audre Lorde to Bell Hooks. Um, And I always say, you know, I then went on my year abroad after that summer and I was, I just, (laughs) I felt like I was ready to fight people. You know, I think when you have that kind of experience of politicization, you kind of are um, kind of armed with this sort of knowledge that has for so long been inaccessible. You kind of want to share it with everyone and, you you know, you're really excited. Um, And I would definitely say at that point, I was still probably kind of practising a more liberal form of feminism for sure. You know, equality, all of these kind of um, very limited um, kind of understandings of what feminism can do and what it should be doing um, for so many different types of women. And I think, you know, it's over the years through kind of, you know, self-evaluation, through being in community with other black women, from, you know, meeting Gail and interviewing, you know, other women involved in the black women's movement in Britain, that I've been able to kind of hone a more radical black feminist praxis that kind of seeks to imagine you know a kind of liberated future I think for me also what was really comforting when I was coming to feminism through school and through the internet and and the people around me was that 
I understood that it had never, as a movement, had unitary demands, right? Mm -hmm. And that some people were placed by others on the periphery. And I think what's really interesting when we're having this conversation about what neoliberalism has done to our understandings of feminism and feminist practice is how uh, a kind of mainstream feminism that's kind of gutted of any critical thinking or um, any kind of radical history is able to take up I don't want to say take up space, but is a- is able to kind of centre itself as the only dominant form of thinking. And I think what what I was attempting to do with this book, or at least what I hope it does, is to remake the case that, yeah, feminism is this thing that we can use to think about the ways in which people are exploited and the ways in which the world that we live in, you know, makes us miserable and harms us in so many different ways. And I guess I was wanting to ask both of you, what specifically is it about liberal feminism that you think is so insidious? Why do you think it has such a big kind of cultural reference or cultural frame? What do you think its main tenets are? Um, and what's your response, I guess, especially you, Gail, uh, having been a central part of black women's organising in Britain, of being placed on the periphery of what was feminist organising? Because for me, your feminist organising and the, and the organising that you were doing at a grassroots community level is the centre, is, you know, that's how so many, me and other people have understood themselves and been able to place themselves mm. in meaningful political work. That's a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, what? Well, uh, yeah, I'm not sure that I'm going to answer the questions as it were, but I'll respond to the yeah, things that are, are generating in me. So first of all, I suppose I'd want to say that we need to hold on to the radicality in the margin. Mm-hmm. The margin allows us to do certain kinds of work, if we accept that kind of boundary, border, centre and margin, but allows us to do a certain kind of work which gives us a vision right across the spectrum of all the ways in which manifestations of power and exploitation and oppression are both produced and enacted because we look across the whole field from the margin. It's like looking at this table. We can look across it rather than if we're centre, we have to keep turning round our back and, and everything. So there's one something about the vision that being placed as a black feminist gives us by being so-called marginalised. At the same time, what that does is, is it begins to inscribe the particularity of black feminism as having to attend to everything. The issue is, is how do we attend to all the ways in which we're produced as racialized, gendered subjects, yeah, and the oppressions that go with that? We're looking across the whole field. We can't only do class. We can't only do anti-imperialism. We can't only do racism. We can't only do gender. We can't only do sexuality. Rather, we are literally in the margin formed across all of those things. And what's important about that, I think, is is that if we can really hold on to that as the place through which we both understand our subjectivity in any given moment and time, you know, in any place, sort of locatedness, we can also say, oh, but look, I can see right across the field here. So I know that something that's just beyond my the horizon of my vision, might be different. So I can move into the unknown. Yes, it's the unknown, but all politics, as you say in the book, all politics is about a vision of entering into the unknown where the um, what's at stake is, is transformation, mm. radical transformation. Mm. 
If you hold on to the centre, if you hold on to a notion of the centre as something you want to enter into, which is perhaps what we might call neoliberal feminism, just wanting to expand an unchanged centre, then what I call that is wanting to occupy whiteness. Mm -hmm. Because for me, and I am totally informed by one of our ancestral figures here is Sylvia Winter, Mm. who really taught us to think through an understanding of the ways in which modern subjects are indeed the legacy of the moment of modernity. We are indeed that. And at the pinnacle of that is something called whiteness, Mr. Rationality. Yeah, okay. And Mr. Rationality is a certain kind of figure. He's a race figure, he's a gendered figure, he's a class figure, but he stands as the pinnacle of the human and we're ranked in categories of value beneath that and we're right at the bottom. Now, what Sylvia Winter tells us is, is that what she calls, for the purposes of this article, womanism, she calls it demonic. And the reason why it's demonic is that it's haunted by these legacies, but it's also something that means that once we locate ourselves as active subjects, we can't know the outcome. Mm. And that's what we've been doing in black feminism. When I was organising with my sister, when I was your ages, yeah, kind of thing, we, we knew what we had to attend to. We knew we had to attend to all the multiple ways in which as black women and black people, under the old sign black, we were not supposed to be here. And if we were here, we were supposed to be quiet and get on with it. And we were making noise. Black people make noise. We make noise in protest. We make noise in joy. We make noise in becoming anew. And that's what we were doing. So we were kind of laying down a legacy. We didn't kind of know that at the time. But we were laying down a legacy to which the generation between me and you would come and occupy, and then you guys would come and occupy. But we hold on to the vision from the margin in order to hold on to an idea of moving towards something that is transformative, but we can't yet quite define. Mm. And it's not occupying that centre ground, which is whiteness. Yeah, I think also just for clarity, I guess, Mm. anybody who isn't kind of familiar with the history of black women's um, feminist organising in in the UK should definitely look up organisations like the Black Brixton Women's Group and OAD, the Organisation of Women of African and Asian Descent, because that that is essentially what Gail's talking about when she's talking Mm, about her organising. No, that's (laughs) right. Um, Go on, um, Jade. Yeah, Um, I would say in thinking through, I guess, that kind of really urgent case that you laid out in that introduction, what I kind of really loved about it in terms of its indictment on liberal feminism was this kind of reclaiming of feminism as a site of conflict. Mm -hmm. I really, really love that because I think, you know, what liberal feminism seeks to do is make, you know, feminism easy, simple. Um, You know, it seeks to consolidate power and not only invisibilise, you know, those of us at the margins, but also re-territorialise those kind of urgent demands of those of us at the margins. So, you know, liberal feminism will kind of say, you know, instead of prison abolition, let's have these sort of glorified women's centres, which, you know, in essence function in exactly the same kind of carceral way um, as prisons. You know, it will kind of look at legalisation sometimes. I mean, even that is kind of like a major site of conflict within liberal feminism, but legalisation of sex work instead of decriminalisation, you know, these are kind of like fundamental positions in which kind of, I guess, the 
feminist future that is a site of liberation for all of us is actually remade within the state and the kind of logics of carcerality, the logics of punitivity. So I think for me, liberal feminism is is quite insidious and quite dangerous because I think it kind of places a lot of onus on the individual to be able to kind of, you know, shape these feminist demands instead of looking at the collective ways that we can build solidarity across and beyond borders, you know, with each other um, and with kind of, you know, so many different perspectives in mind and negotiating those. So that is one of the things for me when I think about kind of neoliberal feminism, when I think about feminism being made a kind of individualistic project where, you know, we look at powerful figures and we see ourselves in them and that's how, you know, feminist future is going to be kind of achieved in a sense, you know, and it's knowing that that future is also always shifting, it's in flux, you know. It's not kind of like a concrete thing that we're kind of working towards in a linear fashion. So, yeah, that's what I would say from that kind of introduction, reclaiming feminism as conflict, as kind of chaos, as sometimes contradictory, is really, really important. But I wondered if I absolutely am on board with that thing, but I'm slightly troubled, and this may be a generational thing, I don't Mm. know, by by the focus on something called liberal feminism as though the opposition is between liberal feminism and feminism, other feminism. Mm-hmm. And I think so lot, what we have to put at the centre of it is the ways in which different kinds of feminism understand the very category gender mm. and how gender comes about and what's at stake in trying to hold it in place in some way. Mm-hmm. I mean, the reason it seems to me why trans asterisk in all its ways troubles so many, so many whom I am surprised are troubled by mm-hmm. it, I have to say, um, I think is because we have in a very clear way the articulation that what gender is, not even sex, what gender is, is really, really up for grabs. Mm. Now, of course, in a sense, black feminism has always been about saying, what is gender? Mm -hmm. It's not this thing that white middle-class women think it is, Mm. or at least that's not all it is. Mm. There's all sorts of other ways in which gender is produced and unproduced. You know, when, as enslaved women, we were beaten and beaten and beaten, we weren't beaten as gendered subjects. subjects. (laughs) We were beaten as property, you know? So... So, in other words, within black feminism, there's always been a, a critique of, of gender, the category. But I think that's particularly pronounced now with trans. And so it seems to me that what we have to pay attention to, if we want to hold on to a radical ground, is how is the category gender being deployed and how is it being situated as something one wants to fight for? And feminists that are not just liberal, i.e. not just about the individual, mm-hmm. and who understand that it has to be a collective struggle and that struggle is always about conflict, people who sit in that camp are still holding on to a normative categorization of gender. And we can't, we must not miss that. Yeah, and we can if we just pose it as liberal as against other. Yeah. Yeah. I think I completely agree. And I think that what black feminism offers us as a frame is an understanding that some of us have never been included in what we understand gender to be, right? Yeah, right. And so I'm interested in in how, because of how liberal feminists have brought this issue 
to be the kind of issue of our time, etc. Um, how that one detracts from the more urgent and pressing concerns, which are that our material conditions as women, cis and trans are not good yeah. and have not been good ever, really, and are continuing to deteriorate. So, so it's like it kind of obscures what's happening in that one way. But it also reframes gender as this unitary category under which we have all existed and under which we are all happy existing, yeah. which I think is not true and I think what happens when we reframe gender as this strategic coalition is that we say this this category doesn't even require us really to like each other yeah. it requires us to deploy it in ways that might make our lives more livable and I think you're completely right in in that a lot of um I will say there's, I think, a section of that particular kind of feminism that is interested in totally rendering trans life impossible, number one. Yeah. But I also think that, that it's under, um, what underlies it is a deep, deep anxiety about the chaos that is introduced when we say something like gender is not a stable and fixed or sex is not a stable and fixed idea. And I think also what liberal feminism kind of does, uh, bouncing off what you said, um, Jade, in terms of reducing something to a very individualistic project, is also turn the these issues that are material into moral issues. So we see, you know, debates around sex work and we see debates around trans rights and trans liberation come down to, oh, I feel this way and I feel this way, instead of actually making a material case based on our understanding of oppression as a structure and our understanding of that, that our aim as feminists should be to decrease people's proximity to violence and decrease their proximity to harm, essentially. And and I think there are ways in trying to uh, re make those cases and in ways in trying to enter into that culture war that the arguments that we make get reduced to oh we are simply allies or we are coming out instead of actually saying no what's fundamental to our liberation it involves all of us there's no way that we we can seek to be liberated without everybody else um, and so yeah I, I think of it in much stronger terms not so much as like I stand with you but like it is literally impossible for me to make my demands for freedom without you and I guess we can go from there thinking about other kinds of organising that is happening right now in terms of like uh, groups like Sisters Uncut and what we see as the value of grassroots uh, organising in opposition to, I guess, what liberal feminism claims as its main mantle, which is policy, legislation, legality, etc. And and I think all of us around the table understand that there are demands that we make in the meantime and, and there are ways that we might use those frames strategically. But I want to ask you, I think what, what often happens when we talk about the grassroots is that the grassroots is never seen as legitimate enough or urgent enough or not making people's lives immediately better and that policy would do that. So I wonder what your reflections are in the strategies that we use as feminists and in our attempts to create these communities of care and mutual aid, how that actually can provide us with an answer that liberal feminism really can't account for or doesn't understand. Um, I mean, I've, you know, heard this so many times in terms of, you know, when I guess prison abolition is brought up, especially, I think, um, you know, when the topic of sex work is brought up, everyone's kind of like, you know, that that's great. And, you know, I'm, I'm, it's very kind of utopian and, um, you know, it, it sounds very imaginative and kind of unrealistic. But for right now, these are the kind of urgent set of concerns that we should be kind of focusing on. And I think what grassroots 
grass grassroots even groups do really really well is kind of combine both that imagination or that imaginative kind of aspect of feminism as a project whilst also kind of working within the kind of scope and limitations that we do have right now you know the kind of urgencies that we do have right now so you know at the moment if we're talking about kind of decriminalization that is working within a kind of set of kind of you know legalistic parameters but there is a kind of wider vision that we're working towards at the same time so I wouldn't say that I mean I think it's completely not only reductive but I think it's completely untrue to kind of position grassroots groups as kind of doing this sort of kind of theoretical work that doesn't look at the lived experiences that women are you know kind of navigating right now I do think it's within that kind of combination you know in your book you speak about these kind of various different positions of feminism that people kind of speak from and that we can kind of combine them to address the situation at the moment so I really see that with like groups like Sisters Uncut um, you know kind of occupying Holloway kind of supporting survivors of domestic violence challenging these kind of legal parameters in the present whilst also thinking beyond them and how to kind of abolish them fundamentally so that we can have that sort of feminist future so I think it is working within the kind of reality that we are are navigating right now but also kind of having that expansive political vision to imagine what could be yeah I think the kind of politics of speculation are really really important to kind of any feminist praxis politics is always speculation true. <laughs> um you know again from my age position I see a parallel in Sisters Uncut which I have nothing but absolute it's not just admiration for, but I identify. Like, that's me when I was younger. <laughs> you know, that's exactly me. And that, which involves also the thing about occupying. You know, so there was the ways in which we occupied, I don't know, it was Terminal 1 or Terminal 2 at Heathrow Airport around immigration stuff and the virginity tests, mm -hmm. along with a different version of SBS, uh, South, South or Black yeah. Sisters. You know, well, it was the idea is that we needed to make some real protest that hit the media mm. at a time where there was no social media platforms. We couldn't control that ourselves. And so we said, OK, let's go on a date and literally occupy whichever terminal it was at Heathrow Airport, which is where women from the subcontinent and indeed from Nigeria in particular, it's often not understood mm -hmm. that Nigerian women were also very much systematically being subjected to these so-called virginity tests. So a kind of sexual invasion, violation, in the interests of the immigration status, etc., of the state. And also, you know, um, the South London Hospital that was occupied by feminists, white and black, you know, for a long time in order to try and save it. You know, so the idea of occupations has been something of a feminist strategy for a time, long time, okay, in that sense. But I think what I also hear from people my age is not so much that grassroots activism doesn't matter, but rather it's this is the refrain and it's not my own. Something like, oh, but it's not a movement, it's not joined up. Mm. So then we say, well, was, you know, was what we were doing in black feminist organisations joined up, say, with sex work campaigns in different parts of the country? Not necessarily, unless we did the travelling up and down the country. You know, in that sense, what do you mean, I want to say, about a movement? But that's the idea, is somehow there's a sense in which it feels as though it's atomised, mm. that there isn't a movement, OK? But for me, what's important about grassroots activism is the ways in which it's in the sites of the local that the transformations 
in the lived, embodied realities of being gendered female come about. When we get active, we change what it means to be a black woman, a white working class woman, a dyke, you know, a queer woman, because we're being active. And subjectivity is also part of the politics of gender transformation, of anti-racist transformation. You know, we're not reduced to being these categories called woman, called black, called Muslim, called Asian. And it's in the local that we do the transformations. When we get mobilised and we're not supposed to be outside the house or outside the factory, we're performing a different subjecthood, a different subjectivity. And that's part of a feminist politics, no? To transform the meaning of gender. And that really feels, in some senses, I want to say more important because it lingers longer than the claims we may make on the state. Of course we make claims on the state for, for reforms, of course we do, because we're trying to get access to something. A politics of redistribution is still part of our political agenda. It's not the horizon, it's not the end of the, the goal, but it's still something that we do. We want there to be resources against austerity. So we make claims against the state. But to make claims against the state isn't the pinnacle of politics. For me, it's transformations in who we think we can be and are becoming. And often that's in the grassroots level. And how we relate to one another. I, I yeah, completely, absolutely. Like, I completely agree with the idea that like something is changed in the doing. And I think when we're talking about organising often, because it, it, it is so cyclical, because there are peaks and troughs, because there are wins and losses, we can get into this idea, which I think is actually a really masculinist idea of like, oh, we didn't achieve the thing that we wanted to achieve and therefore our organising has been pointless. Of course we didn't win. I don't know. I, I, that seems so obvious to me that those people on the underside of capital, on the underside of rate, on the underside of all of these oppressive structures, when have we ever, quote unquote, won in that way? But I also think that resistance matters, not just because of its material consequences, but because of how it changes who we are, how we relate to one another, and also because of what it gives us in the moment, like the moment of the sit-in, the moment of the strike. Those are transformative moments, not just for individuals, but for ourselves as well. And I, I think that I agree also with what both of you have said about the, what neoliberalism does as this atomizing project and how that has obviously had an effect on how our movements are doing. And I think it's also stifled intergenerational conversation mm -hmm. because there aren't many routes outside of, I guess, the academic routes through which we might be able to learn from a radical history and from a legacy and to see what happened well in the past and how we're continuing the work that's been done. Yeah, and that is just because we're living in a world where we've seen... NGOs and the state kind of decimate um, infrastructures of social care. We've seen them bring resources that otherwise would have helped um, working class uh, people and get rid of those too. Um, yeah, and, and privatise really the ways in which we're relating to each other. And what I see as liberal feminism is an exact kind of mirror and result of that privatised sense. It's, it's a like, oh, you know, we have to care about this woman in power or we have to care about this individual woman and what she represents for the wider, our wider idea of what women are and what they can do. But also that some women's exploitation is a natural part of other women's success, right? And I think there, there's a, there was a point in the book where I was talking about particularly state violence and mm. the death of black women, the death of black people in this country at the hands of state violence and this idea that prisons or the police are reformable 
um, institutions, right? And I wanted to reframe it more as like, for those people that don't experience proximity to violence when the police are called, do you wish to be the recipients of that kind of protection? The kind of protection that means that other people must die so you feel safe, right? And I think that what the feminism that I guess we're, we're trying to make the case for offers us is to really sit in those complications and to understand that everything is not going to be solved just by sitting and thinking through them, that things are going to be hard, they're going to be complicated and they're going to be messy. But we have to acknowledge, you know, that there are things that we might see as wins that aren't wins for some people. For example, something like the domestic violence bill that Theresa May's government first introduced, um, which hasn't been passed into law yet, but Mm, might be. Um, There's a clause in that that says maybe the best thing to do for a woman who's experienced um, domestic violence, if the police can't help her, is to deport her to a country that she's never been to before. And that there are obviously all of these liberal organisations that are making the case that this tough-on-crime bill is is an act actually a good thing and I think yeah what we're saying is no there are people that have never ever come under the scope of the state's concern or the law's concern and what do we do with those people we can't ignore that they exist but I think what you put on the table again there and what you do very well in the book I think is to say that a feminism that is worth its salt cannot be aligned to ideas about the nation mm-hmm. and and its sovereignty. <laughs> I mean, if we don't know that in the wake of Brexit, then we really know nothing. Mm. And, that, and that black feminism, in my view, is fundamentally antithetical to the idea of the nation. So I would talk, for example, about black feminism in Britain rather than black British feminism. I don't want to align it to this national form, partly because we have all the ongoing alliances with sisters all over the world, in in fact, but also because how we understand our struggle is informed by those struggles elsewhere. And that the nation state, as you've just so clearly said, you know, is part of the problem, part of the authorization and implementer of the very violences that structures our lives and against which we need to fight, you know, absolutely fight. And I think it's also about the impossibility of the nation for those of us who are black, those of us who are not white and, you know, don't have those claims to Britain in the same way. You know, I think so much of kind of, I guess, mainstream politics, and this is kind of both mainstream kind of liberal black feminist kind of positions at times um, and kind of, you know, wider mainstream feminism is about that kind of politics of recognition, of like speaking to the nation, of like wanting to be included in the category of citizen in specific ways. You know, and it is talking about, I think, in terms of if we're going to invent some more radical feminism, it's talking about how, like you said, Lola, for us to be citizens, someone else has to be positioned as a non-citizen. They have to be exposed to that sort of violence. Um, So it is kind of then giving up those claims to wanting to be included in, you know, what is inherently a violent category. And then I was also kind of thinking as you were speaking as well in terms of like, you know, grassroots organizing and the links between the kind of historical black women's movement of the 70s and 80s and what we're seeing now with like sisters um is also kind of recognizing that in terms of successes and wins like those are also kind of like neoliberal forms of understanding history you know a kind of periodization of history that presents feminism in those waves and you know with these certain claims that are kind of collective to everyone which of course you know didn't ever exist i think with feminist organizing as you kind of say, and, you know, as we've been saying, you're organising for the future you want to see. So you might also not see it within your lifetime. So we're not organising just for ourselves. We're organising for, you know, someone else to kind of lay the groundwork. And I think when you position, you know, your arguments 
before you kind of go on to the main argument of the book, you kind of look at the history of black women's organising and what made it possible for so many of us to kind of do the organising and the work and the activism that we want to do now. So I, I think there's also that kind of longer historical memory and genealogy of like organising that paves the way. The next generation or who else is going to come, um, even within those kind of successes and losses, to kind of build upon those and imagine something different within that as well. And also to, to critique them as well. Because yes. I, I think one thing that's really important and one thing that when I've heard you speak, Gail, is to reflect on the things that actually we didn't do very well mm. or, or the gaps or the limitations in the ways that we were organising. And I think about this in, this is kind of a tangent, but I think about this in relation to the kind of wars and, and the emotional and effective responses that black women have to defending specific terms that have been mobilised for us, but also mobilised in our name. So thinking about like intersectionality, for example, as an idea, right? How so much effort is gone into defending the term from Marxists that willfully misunderstand them, et cetera, et cetera, that often maybe we don't have a space. And, you know, Jennifer Nash has said this, maybe we don't have a space to actually reflect and be like, OK, this one frame doesn't offer us everything. everything. Our organising doesn't offer us everything. There has to be a space for us to say, OK, we could have done this better or this could be improved in that way. But often because of the gaze of, you know, outside um, organisations, the gaze of other kind of political methodologies that always frame black feminism as antagonistic or peripheral or as not legitimate, you're always put in this defensive position. And I wondered what you kind of thought about that in terms of, yeah, how we critique ourselves, how we critique our theories and how we might align ourselves with other people that we see as part of this collective project together mm. i think the intersectionality was is a, <laughs> is a, is a complicated one yeah. is profoundly complicated and i totally agree with jennifer nash about the need to hold open the space for critical self-reflection in order to generate more capacious spaces for us to do our work absolutely and at the same time, and I've written about this, I'm acutely aware of the way in which in the European context, intersectionality as a theoretical eye, if you like, has been rendered white with black feminists only being accredited with intersectionality as a description of a set of experiences. Mm. And that's just doing the same old job of certain kinds of white feminism mm -hmm. that positions itself as patriarchal, i.e. the ones who have the right to speak and the ones who speak the truth of whatever. So I think that's a problem. I think we need to attend to that, those of us situated in a landmass called Europe with Britain on its edges. I really do. At the same time, I think it's really important and it's why I... I'm very much involved in intergenerational conversations because here I am sat with you guys and I, 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 I kind of am connected to you yeah. grandchildren, as it were, um, in all sorts of ways. And that's really important to me. But it also makes me be cautious about what we, how we characterise generations of black feminism, if you like. So for me, it's not that I represent one generation of black feminism and you another how I'd want to think about generations of black feminism is how do we understand the struggle? Mm. How do we think the questions before us that attend to all those multiple intersecting categories of power and visions beyond those categories of power, the kinds of refusal mm -hmm. 
to use Tina Camp's idea, that we do, you know, when we say we're refusing to simply be aligned to a particular category and just subordinate ourselves to that. Our everyday life does it differently, does it otherwise, in that sense. And putting those things together, it makes me think that how we need to conceive generation is how does one, in one moment, a group of people who convene under the name black feminist depict the issues at hand? And that may have us of different ages, chronological ages, but we represent a generation. Okay, And then that allows people like me, say, to have moved, to have moved across a political understanding of what the issues are facing us in Britain in 2020 as opposed to Britain in 1979. Mm -hmm. And then that's a generational question. Yeah, yeah. Now, of course, we're formed by the moments in which we live. You know, I'm formed in the images, if you like, of a social democratic consensus where the working class achieved something against the state that was called a welfare state that gave us stuff that in austerity we're fighting to get back but was never enough mm -hmm. and we needed to critique. Of course I'm formed by that, but I don't, my vision isn't only locked in that. My vision isn't something called second wave feminism, yeah, not even second wave black feminism. It's an understanding that what is black feminism has changed Okay, and then, then to come back to your question, one of the ways in which it's changed is that we are now more able to talk about, attend to, care for, validate queer black feminist life mm. and black life generally than when I was 27. Mm. We are. Mm. And that's partly because of the work some of us have done just by existing, mm. but partly, of course, because later people have taken it up and said, this is acclaimed politics. Mm. It's not just that Gail was in Brixton Black Women's Group and lesbian left. <laughs> it's that now, in one site, we might be black feminists who attend to queer black life. Absolutely. And, and we that can those speak things that, yeah. are related Absolutely. As well. yeah. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask also about both of your senses of the archive. And so I was saying kind of before we started recording that one of the chapters that I enjoyed writing the most was the chapter on art because I have this idea of art and politics being separated in the minds of the people in those two camps, right? And that it, it's often very hard to think about organising work as artistic practice. Mm -hmm. And maybe not so hard to think of artistic practice as a, as a form of like organising work or making um, a case for kind of radical argument. So I wanted to ask both of you what are some instances of black feminist art, whether that be kind of photography, writing, um, anything you want, really, that have moved you and that really make you think about the ethos that you hold close to you as somebody who is existing in the world and is making the case for a liberated future through a, a black feminist lens? For me, um, I guess the kind of most transformative forms of specifically kind of black feminist work that I've read over the course of the past year has been kind of Wayward Lives by Sadia Hartman mm. um, and In the Wake by Christina Sharp. Like I, I kind of view both of those texts as really kind of foundational to the sort of work that I'm trying to produce myself. And I think particularly with um, Wayward Lives, you know, Sadia Hartman is kind of using this technique that she calls critical fabulation, which is kind of using the archive and, you know, interacting 
dealing with these documents of the state um, and kind of, you know, looking at the violence that has been produced through these documents um, and through the interaction of, between the state and black women and saying, you know, how do we kind of attend to this violence? How do we in the present engage with this kind of historical brutality, but also attend to the ways that, you know, black women's lives also are sites of beauty and care and, you know, redress to um, that violence. So for me, especially as a historian, you know, and especially as a historian in a white British academy that kind of places so much emphasis on the archive, on, you know, doing a certain type of work that shouldn't be imaginative. It needs to kind of just detail exactly what happened. You know, exactly what happened is is how whiteness, you know, territorializes history, you know. It's that kind of idea of objectivity that doesn't exist. So what I, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's a fiction of whiteness. So I think for me, you know, when I was reading that chapter about art and kind of which subjects do we choose to center in our art you know how do we see art as political it is a really important kind of way to think through organizing not just as something you do on the ground but you know there's different forms of attending to the lives specifically for me of black women um, and kind of trying to develop a black feminist praxis that also looks at the kind of the everyday and the ordinary of black women's lives as kind of sites for revolution well, I mean, it's, um, it's weird, isn't it? Because the idea that somehow politics and art are too separated, mm. I mean, makes no sense, That's makes no all. sense whatsoever. Yeah. And especially if we have a kind of wide understanding of what we call art. I mean, everything that we did, sort of anti-imperialist work, where we were drawing on the labours, the intellectual and artistic labours going on in the continent and the Caribbean, for example, then we were totally, you know, enamoured by the novels produced by Erna Brodber, who's also a sociologist. Understanding some of the ways in which Ngugi would write the novels in order for us to inhabit another subjectivity. It's that point about that Saidia refers to so much in, in Wayward Lives. You know, that we live otherwise, even in the face of and under the pressure of all the violences. Aubrey Williams's Guyanese artist, for me, has always been astounding in ways that I couldn't articulate, especially when I first came to know it, when I was an activist. I didn't know, you know, I went to school in this country, you know, in late 50s, early 60s. What did we know about black life, mm -hmm. black productions of anything? Mm -hmm. They just were workers on the buses and, you know, robbers and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> you know. And so suddenly I see this artistic work, these paintings by Aubrey Williams, and I'm thinking, what the fuck? This is just extraordinary. And I'm filled, not with words, because it's inchoate, but I'm filled with another sense of we can express ourselves and our presence in other ways. Mm. Okay, so there's that. But there's also, like, I'm thinking, when you ask the question, first of all, I was thinking of Mona Hatoum, and I know she's not, and that, an early piece of hers, I don't know if you've ever seen it, it's a photograph where she's got someone walking in Brixton and behind them, tied onto them, it's great the big policeman yeah, boots. Yeah, I opened the, yeah. the Oh, yeah, of course, you do, yeah, you do, yeah, of course. Well, when I first saw Mona's, and Mona was a friend of my partners at the time, they were involved in, you know, Palestine work together. It was like, yes, <laughs> this is it. We don't need words. Look, this is it. This is it. See it there? You know, that's yeah. it. That's it. This captures it. Yeah. 
And of course, the thing is, is at the same time of the kind of Brixton Black Women's Group and OAD, there was this burgeoning of black artistic production. Huge burgeoning. In some senses, more rich and variegated Mm. than some of the so-called formal politics Mm. um, that was going on. So there's all the film work, Ingrid Pollard's photos as well, Sonia Boyce's work. I mean, all of those gave us a sense of another way to be that we could emerge almost like caterpillars. You know, parents had arrived and put us here and we were the caterpillars and now we could emerge into something that might be called a butterfly and fly ourselves, but together, you know, and make a murmuration of political activism through our forming in this moment. And the artwork just gave us the pulse, the texture... Aligned to music, of course, gave us the rhythms and the beats. So it was profound. And I think that that book that's just come out, The Places Here, about black arts in Britain in the 1980s, which is a big compendium of that, really documents some of that work and how vital it is for understanding what it is that produced something called black feminism and what black feminism was aligned to as it articulated in Britain. And it's as it continues to articulate now with all the artwork that goes on now. So I think of Barbie Asante as well, you know, uh, Rahana Zaman. I mean, all of that work that's going on. Yeah, yeah. in the um, art chapter, I spoke to Momtaza Mary, who's an essayist and and a poet, and she brought up this Tony Cade Bambara quote of the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. And I I always, yeah, that's 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 how I think about um, this idea of making the case for political art or, or knowing that black feminist artists or people who have used art to make political cases have done it for the sake of our freedom have have done it for the sake of understanding that art is one of the many tools that we use to denaturalize and destabilize things like racism sexism fascism etc um, understanding the limitations of it as in you know art alone can't undo centuries of colonial history or might not be able to undo those things um, to their very core but they're, they're one of the things that can make us recognize that actually the way that we live now is not okay you know mm-hmm. or, or that there is something deeply deeply perverse about living in a world that is structured around the death of some people or exploitation or all of these things um, and also she said this thing that I keep coming back to of like the job of these political frames is to clarify the machinery of exploitation mm-hmm. and if it, if they've done that job then they don't necessarily have to be the subject of the work in itself mm-hmm. but if the work can aid us in mm. in kind of making things clearer, then it's done its job. And and also, as you were talking about the archive, Jade, I was thinking about the idea of the archive as this long kind of accrual that it doesn't it doesn't necessarily give us everything that we need and everything that we need is not necessarily contained within it but it's just one of the sites through which we can reflect we can also like explore the contestations we can explore the arguments etc but also I think what we forget now in, in when we do the work and when we write about the work and when we write reflections etc is that we are creating our own archives, archives. that might be drawn on but as, we are the archive yeah. we are the archive mm. we are embodying the archive mm-hmm. and part of that is also the archive carries on going exists as we ex- carry on existing mm-hmm. despite it all mm-hmm. that is that's the profundity of it that we carry on existing despite it all we, we refuse to go away 
at the same time as we refuse to live by the terms by which they would want us to. Mm, And that's the archive Mm. in action, in us, in our bodies, Mm. especially in our collective bodies. I think that's also why, in terms of like oral history, mm. kind of speaking to you, Gail, I remember, <laughs> I remember the moment we met, uh, <laughs> which is one of my favourite stories. It's over here, <laughs> <laughs> we were at um, the South Bank Centre three years ago at um, an Angela Davis talk, mm. and you know it was just about to begin. And I just kind of started learning about the black women's movement and black women's history in Britain, which, you know, for so many of us, like you said, if you're not kind of within academia, is kind of rendered really inaccessible to so many people. And, you know, I was speaking about it to a friend and I was saying, you know, I want to do an oral history, but I can't find any of the women online. And Gail was directly sitting in front of me. I didn't realise whatsoever. I was like, like, oh, my God, how am I going to do this project? And Gail turns around. She's like so cavalier and like casual about it. And she says, you know, oh. I was in that movement. I'll, I'll talk it. to you. Yeah. I could she said, not. what's your name? <laughs> Literally, I was like, oh, sorry, like, what's your name? She said, Gail Lewis. I was like, oh, my God. Like, it was, it was one of the best but moments this is of what my I mean, life. You see, yeah. spirit direct, that's yeah. not an accident. Spirit yeah. produced that, it really. Was that city. amazing, you know. But then, you know, then kind of, like you said, like speaking to all of the women that I spoke to who were involved in black women's activism, kind of regarding them as these sites of historical memory and kind of radical historical actors in their own right, not having to kind of look for these sort of written documents or Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, written documents are not the kind of limit of that kind of historical memory of the movement. And, you know, even when we're talking about art, I remember like when I was speaking to you in that first conversation that we had and you were saying that um, Tony K. Bambara's Salt Eaters was Mm. really really foundational for you in terms of coming to black feminism and forming that kind of you know political practice so I think there's so many different kind of layers of um, archival engagement even within that interaction so I think it is kind of not just thinking about the archive as an institution but you know thinking about as you said kind of people carrying these kind of rich historical memories that might inform the way that we kind of act in the present mm-hmm. um I wanted to end by talking about two things that I think about a lot, which is the imagination and the future. I think we've kind of touched on futurity in that we've agreed that we're thinking about liberated futures. We're thinking beyond um, state institutions and that all of the organising that we do around reproductive justice, sex work, all of these different things are in order to to move towards, you know, that horizon, that ever-changing horizon. But I wanted to ask you individually what your relation to futurity is and how you think that refusing to capitulate imaginative potential might help us get there, if that makes sense. So refusing these liberal frames, refusing to be satisfied with the state or satisfied with a particular organisation of social life, etc. How that relates to, to the future in which you envision it and what words, feelings, emotions, reflections come up for you when you think about um, the future. And and in the beginning of the book, I kind of do this imagination exercise um, where I talk about like, imagine this, imagine a world where, you know, your labour is not tied to profit. It's not tied to all of these things. Nations don't exist. Borders don't exist. Prisons don't exist. The police don't, don't exist, etc. I always like to ask people, what, what, what are you doing? What's the first thing you're doing in that place? I'm like, I would, what would I do? I think I would make lots of art. I would write loads. I would have lots of dinner parties. I would just be, you know, around <laughs> people like, and have community. And so I guess a better way to, to pose that question is, you know, how, how are you envisaging that future and what are you doing in it? How are you situating yourself and others in there? 
Well, I guess, I mean, in terms of the futurity issue, I mean, I do really like and find it very helpful, although it's deep, that notion, again, of um, camp that futurity is what we have to do now for dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. That's the future, in a sense, what we have to do now. And that's good for me because it makes me think, yes, in a sense, that was our practice then. But now, in my old age, I still need to be doing stuff. Mm. So in whatever ways I do stuff, that's really important because it's dot, 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 what we need to do now mm. to make something happen. It imposes, uh, it's not a moral responsibility, it's an ethical re responsibility, by which I mean a responsibility to the forms of sociality how we're related to each other, a vision of how we might be related to each other in the future. And for me, that future, while you're writing and having parties, I would be <laughs> swimming. I'd be swimming in the blue, blue ocean. But it would be in a... My swimming in the blue, blue ocean would be such that my body and your bodies and the bodies of everybody around us would be totally unintelligible in terms of the normativities mm. that make them intelligible Absolutely. now. Absolutely. That there would be make no sense to talk about gender and race and racism and sexuality and all those things as positionalities, mm. as identities, as subjectivities, that they are would be unintelligible. Now I know that is a speculation beyond our horizon mm. but that is what I think mm. the project is absolutely to make it unintelligible and I'll swim in that ocean and when I come out <laughs> no one will mark me as oh look that old black woman with an English <laughs> accent <laughs> <laughs> and is she a queer <laughs> who's that other woman she's with that Palestinian <laughs> No, I absolutely love that. I, I also <laughs> I also love that you've brought up, you know, the work of like Tina Camp because I think that idea of futurity, that idea of living the future now, mm -hmm. you know, as like kind of at the heart of black feminism as a project um, is really beautiful as well, you know, amongst being urgent, amongst being kind of central to what we're trying to do. I, I do see it as just like, you know, kind of expansive, as endless, as kind of, you know, taking us on so many different kind of journeys. And it's one that, you know, I particularly kind of think about, you know, I'm writing my thesis about the black women's movement, as you know. And, you know, I think about the kind of forms of futurity that kind of black women in Britain was staging at that time, you know, all of that organising was speculative, it was about the future you know, things like reproductive justice you know, that was an audacious claim to make um, when black women's bodies had been kind of historically brutalised under colonialism, under slavery so I think that project of futurity has always been so central to black women's lives, black women organising at the margins, you know, refusing these kind of forms of domination in the everyday and I really loved, you know, when I was reading um that imaginative piece of the introduction lola i i've never mm. you know kind of seen it set out like that in my <laughs> life like you know i consider myself to be a prison abolitionist i consider myself um to be you know in solidarity with sex workers and envisaging all of these things but i've never seen them put together mm. in a way that we can understand it as a kind of coalescing and coherent future that is you know 
as Gail said, like beyond our horizons at the moment, but is absolutely possible and is, is absolutely what we're working towards. So, you know, for me, I'm very much like you. I'm living lavish. Like once, <laughs> once the revolution comes, like, and not, you know, not lavish in like a kind of like bourgeois, yeah, kind of obviously yeah. capitalistic sense, but yeah. like, you know, I'm I'm like wearing my yeah. gowns and like writing. Yeah. I'm going to dinner parties. Yeah. I'm kind of, you know, building community, you know, with the rest of my sisters. I'm kind of thinking through, I guess, what it means to be in the world without being constituted through those mm. conditions of domination. Mm. You know, what does it mean mm. now? You know, what does humanity mean now mm. in a liberated world? You know, something that we've never had access to. Is that something completely different? Do we need new terminology mm. for that sort of condition? You know, like you said, womanhood is a category that has been abolished. So like, you know, who am I now yeah. in that world? I think it would just be me kind of trying to, you know, figure out who I am without these subject positions that have been kind of, you know, placed upon me, yeah, enforced upon me um, and that I've had to navigate as, you know, a condition of existing in this world. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think you laying it out like that, I was like, wow, like there is really no limit to the project of feminism, Mm. you know, we can have it all, you Mm. know, we really can. And we can can aim, we can have this chance of actually living full and dignified Mm -hmm. lives and kind of seeing what that might look like. So I'm going to round up actually, when you were both talking about Tina Camp, I realised that on my laptop, I have a quote from Tina Camp that Mm -hmm. is talking about futurity. So I'm going to read that to kind of round off. But I just want to say that I hope in reading this book and if you come into contact with this book that it is a helpful starting point for thinking about all of the things that we've discussed in this conversation and that it's it's an accessible way through which you might come to a specific kind of critical thinking about your lives and, and the lives of the people that you care about and the lives of the people that we're kind of uh, told not to care about, right? Or, or are invisibilized to us. So I'm going to end by reading this quote by Tina Camp. And she says, Futurity is, for me, not a question of hope, though it is certainly unescapably intertwined with the idea of aspiration. To me, it is crucial to think about futurity through a notion of tense. What is the tense of a black feminist future? It is a tense of anteriority, a tense relationship to an idea of possibility that is neither innocent nor naive, nor is it necessarily heroic or intentional. It is often humble and strategic, subtle and discriminating. It is devious and exacting. It is not always loud and demanding. It is frequently quiet and opportunistic, dogged and disruptive. The grammar of black feminist futurity is a performance of a future that hasn't yet happened but must. Thank you for listening. And thank, thank you. you both. Thank um, you. Thank you. That was amazing. Conversation thank with you. me. I enjoyed thank it you. so much. Yeah, thank you very much. Once again, that was Lola Olafemi, Jade Bentil and Gail Lewis. So I'd like to thank them all very much for taking the time to come on the show. If you've enjoyed the discussion, then please do head over to plutobooks.com forward slash podcast reading, where you can find Lola's book, as well as other books that relate to the discussion they've had today. And of course, once again, there is a special discount for listeners. So do head over to the website and check it out. And again, just a reminder that the next episode that's going to be coming through on the feed is The New Intellectuals, hosted by Jordan T. Camp. And that's part of the new collaboration between Pluto and the People's Forum. Really looking forward to that one. This has been another episode of Radicals in Conversation. Thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.